Thank you, Dave. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your day. This is yours. You made it. You created it. You ordained it from before time began. We would be foolish if we didn't stop and admit that it is all about you. Our lives were given to us to proclaim something about you. And so now as we look to your word, your divinely inspired, perfect word, I pray that you would speak directly to us. A people in Beach Haven, New Jersey, some here on vacation, some that live here year-round, regardless of where we're from, we've come here because we need to hear from you. So I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Famous French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes um, was made famous because he devoted his life to studying and resolving a question that he couldn't really find the answer to. He struggled to understand if he could really uh, know anything for certain. If you've ever been to college and studied philosophy, René Descartes and some of his writings are probably something that you've studied before. René Descartes was not a believer. He didn't put his faith in the one true God. But he devoted his life to unpacking this question, can I really know anything for certain? Here's why. Because he came to a place in his life where he realized that he couldn't trust his own senses. He couldn't trust his thinking. He couldn't trust his sight. He couldn't trust his hearing. He couldn't trust anything. And so disturbed was he by this that he devoted all of his life to exploring it more deeply. And he came up with this rather famous saying, which most of you have probably heard before, I think, therefore I am. And what he came to realize is that because I'm a person that can, or I'm a being that can think thoughts, that must mean that I exist. This man was so plagued by the idea that he couldn't know something for certain that if you read some of his writings, he would even say, in one of his writings, he said, I think that most of my thoughts must be controlled by a demon because I can't trust any of them. He came to realize that his mind had fooled him so often that he just couldn't trust anything. So his entire life's work, if you read anything he wrote, was devoted to this one idea. Can I know anything for certain? And because he didn't really know the one true God, he ended up living out an entire life devoted to this pursuit that he never really came to the conclusion of. Kind of a sad existence. But I bring that up because I want to ask you that question as we get started this morning. Have you ever come to a place where you wondered, like Descartes, can I trust my own mind? If you've ever visited somebody who's suffering from dementia, that thought is provoked. You, see, you get a firsthand glimpse at how fragile the human mind can be. And we only notice it when we see somebody who's really suffering from an extreme example of how untrustworthy the mind is. But I think it's probably present in all of us. We take note of it when somebody's suffering from dementia, but it's there all the time. The untrustworthiness of our mind. I can attest to you that in my life, I've been wrong about many things that I thought I was certain of. Way more than I've been right. <laughs> Way wrong. Proven wrong. Been embarrassed about how many times I was wrong about things I thought I could go to the hill and die for. And so I know from first-hand account, and as many of you probably can, you can attest that I really can't trust my own senses. I can't trust my own thought life even. There's a growing wave in our culture today to put our trust in science. And let me tell you why 
I just can't trust science. I can't join into that wave. Because there's one thing that science has proven itself, proven consistent throughout the time since it's been called science, and that is, is that it continually proves itself wrong. You know how I know that? I've said this before. If you take the science book that my 99-year-old grandmother had and compare it to the science book that my children have, totally different. <laughs> so if you were growing up when my grandmother was a child, you would have realized, well, I'm going to put my faith in science. And then you get to be this age and you go, whoa, that would have been a mistake because all that's been proven wrong with new discoveries. So if you're going to base your life on science, you are being fooled. You are being fooled. Because another generation, everything you're basing your life on will be proven false. We have a couple of people who are scientists here, and they'll tell you that tr too, if you sit and talk with them. Every generation discovers new things, which prove those things in the previous generation to be false or just not quite so accurate. So like Descartes, we have to ask ourselves, what can we really base our lives on if our mind is so easily fooled? The question of your untrustworthiness of your mind is something that every one of us has to explore on our own. And here's why I say that. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Most people will determine what will happen after they take their last breath based upon what they can uh, discover as truth in their lifetime. They're trying to come to the knowledge of the truth on their own and they're basing their eternal destiny upon what they can figure out as being true or false. And so if you're like Descartes and you realize that my mind really is just so untrustworthy, what should you do? What really can we be certain of? I submit to you this morning that there must come a time when every human being reconciles themselves to the plain truth that you cannot trust your mind. I've entitled the sermon, When to Stop Trusting Your Mind. This is a first part of a two-part sermon series. Because the passage that we're going to study in the book of Genesis really brings that to the forefront. When to stop trusting your mind. <clears throat> in case you're thinking to yourself, well, now might be a good time for me to leave because I'm just not sure I agree with that guy. Let me explain what I mean. According to the Bible, every human being that has ever been born since Adam and Eve has been born into a corrupted state. Every human being since Adam and Eve. Now, when we think of the corrupted state of the earth, we often think of the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is decaying. Everything's dying. Even secular people, atheist philosophers and, and college professors will tell you, yes, the earth, there's something wrong with the world. Everything is in the process of dying, falling apart. Why? What's wrong? Something is corrupted, distorted, and warped. When we think of the corrupted state of our own bodies, you can look at it. It's dying. It's wrinkling. It's getting old. It's been dying since the moment you were born. That's what we do best is we decay. But we often just think of it as the body. But let me tell you something. It starts with the control center of your body. The control center of your body is your heart and your mind. They are the reason that your body is corrupted. They're the reason your body is decaying and dying. Your mind cannot be trusted. So if you're sitting here this morning and you say to yourself, I'm a person of logic. I like to think my way to the truth and determine for myself what is true and what is false. I'm telling you, you cannot trust your mind. You are being deceived. And here's the sad part. According to the Bible, I don't know whether or not you believe this book or not, but I do, because this is what it says. According to the Bible, a person who thinks like that is totally blind, totally deceived. And here's the sad part. They don't know it. And they get angry when they hear a message like this. Because they think 
They're the ones whose lights have been turned on. I hope that I'm not talking about you this morning. I hope that you're sitting here this morning going, thank God that my eyes, these eyes have been opened to the way the world actually is. Thank God. The big idea for today's message is a mind that obeys the flesh is a mind you shouldn't trust. A mind that obeys the flesh is a mind you shouldn't trust. Only God can renew a person's mind. Only God. He's the only one that can awaken someone's heart and mind to the truth. This isn't something you can do for yourself. In our continuing saga in the book of Genesis, we've been looking at Jacob's life. How many of you learned Jacob's story when you were a kid? Just out of curiosity. Oh, good. A good number of you. Here's where we are in the book of Genesis. Jacob has just taken two wives. One whom he loved, named Rachel, and one whom he didn't, named Leah. Leah was the rejected one, first by her father and now by her husband. And they are living in a state of extreme, Jacob especially, extreme confusion. Do you know why? Because they're living in polygamy. They're a prime example of a, of a group of people who have undone what God said his marriage is supposed to be. And now they're living in this incredible state of confusion. And what else would you expect, right? When two or more people are married to the same husband, what would you expect except for envy and jealousy and fighting and bitterness? Every time we see polygamy in the Bible, we know that it's something that God says is not a good idea. Every time. It's actually lifted up as something to stay away from. So this is where we find them. These two sisters that have been warring since they were little have now, it's come to a head. It's really, really bad in this household. This isn't a place where you'd want to go have Thanksgiving dinner at Jacob's house. It's bad. And so here's what happened in Genesis chapter 29. God remembered Leah, the rejected one, and he gave her four healthy baby boys. And so what do you think Rachel's reaction is? Jealousy, envy, and anger. And that's where we pick up Genesis chapter 30. Grab your Bibles. Let's open it together. Genesis chapter 30. Leah has just had four baby boys. Let's see how Rachel responds, shall we? If you don't have a Bible, there's one directly in front of you or it's projected on the screen behind me. Genesis 30, beginning in verse 1, continuing through 24, says this. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with many wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. 
So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you now take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. After she bore a daughter, she called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. It's a lot there. Let me remind you of the big idea of this message so you really understand where I'm going with this. A mind that obeys the flesh is a mind you shouldn't trust. A mind that obeys the flesh is a mind you didn't trust. Some of you may be sitting here going, first of all, pastor, I don't even know what you mean when you say flesh. Some of the kids might be going, flesh? What does that even mean? Let me take just a few moments to explain what I mean and tell you why I gave that as the big idea for this passage. The flesh is something that, that the Apostle Paul talked a lot about. And when he starts talking about the flesh, first he's talking about your actual members of your body. Your hands, your feet, your tongue, your eyes, your ears, all those things. So let's start with that. That's the flesh. But he takes it a step further. When he uses this word, he uses it in a much broader sense to describe anything that your mind would desire that is contrary to what God says is best for you. The great reformer Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther wrote that Paul's use of the term refers to the whole man, your body, your soul, and your reason, your ability to think. And that the term flesh refers to every desire that runs contrary to God. When you look at the Bible, at the way that Paul uses this term, that's the way he uses it. Everything that you think and do that is contrary to what God says is best for you. <clears throat> All these times that the Bible refers to the word flesh, there's one absolute thing that we can know for certain. That the Bible is uh, depicting it as against what God wants to do with you through the Spirit. That's the way the Bible depicts it in the New Testament. That your flesh wants to do one thing, but God wants you to do another thing. And His Spirit is working within you to try to help you to do the thing that God says is best for you. There's this war that's going on. Now I want us to interpret what's happening with Rachel and her sister Leah in light of what the New Testament says about this battle. Because in case you couldn't realize it, this is one of the greatest evidences of somebody who's living in the flesh that's in the whole Bible. For 20, yes, 20 years this went on. If you look back and see the, the time span that this happened, from the time that he married these two women to the time when their sixth child was born, it's a span of 20 years that this rivalry, this sibling rivalry, this envy and jealousy was happening. 20 years. That's a long time. Let me read to you in Galatians chapter 5 about this war that's going on in Leah and Rachel's mind. It's probably the most famous passage in the Bible about what's this war between the flesh and the spirit. Turn with me there. Galatians 5, 
verses 16 through 26. Look at what Paul writes. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That's just another way of saying be obedient to God's voice. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Do you see the war? You see what he's depicting there? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So he's going to give us some examples now. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now start to remember Leah and Rachel's story here. Listen to these next ones. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, there are more, but these are just prime examples. I warn you, this is a pastoral warning out of love. I warn you, can you hear him pleading? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, now he's comparing and contrasting, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with Him. Let us not become conceited. Now listen to how he ends it. Provoking one another, envying one another. This must be a big thing, this envy, since Paul mentioned it twice. Here's why I read this to you. Out of these 15 things that Paul mentions here, 12 of them are present in this little story of Leah and Rachel. 12 of them. If there ever was a prime example of what Paul was talking about, we're reading it right now. This envious rivalry, Paul says, this will destroy your life. It'll destroy your life. And so I thought, boy, God's calling me to just do an exposition over what this battle between the flesh and the spirit is all about as we look at this example with Leah and Rachel. Both Rachel and Leah had allowed their thinking to become so consumed by this one ruling passion, this one desire to outdo the other one, to win the favor of their husband, that it consumed their every thought. And here's, here's what I'm getting at. It warped their mind. Their mind had become what the New Testament calls, use the big word, reprobate. They couldn't think properly anymore. It disinfected every single part of their thinking. And it was distorted and corrupted. <clears throat> now, I've got to use an old word here. Um, some of my pastor, friend, pastor's friend, pastor friends would tell me not to use this word because um, we just don't use it in our modern language anymore. And so I tried to think, boy, if I can come up with a more modern word, and I just couldn't. It's the word carnal. It's not a word that we use anymore. It's in older versions of the Bible, but it's the right word. It's the right word to use here. The word carnal if you translate it out, it literally means fleshly. So if I use that word, that one is, is even more unpopular today. Carnal and fleshly, they mean the same thing. A carnal mind is one that is distorted. And it distorts everything that it perceives so that it thinks it's doing right. A carnal mind is one that is totally obedient to the various desires of the body. 
That's what a carnal mind is. That's what's happening with Leah and Rachel here. So here's what I'm getting at. If you're sitting here this morning and you're someone who has made a practice out of giving license to a particular desire in your mind that you know God says is wrong, I have to warn you, just like Paul warned these Christians in his first letter to to Galatia, I have to warn you because this lifestyle will lead you to destruction. It will. The Bible makes it extremely clear. So I need to ask a question that I know some Christians have wrestled over for a while. Can Christians be carnal? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, yes, they can, but for a very short time. If you are a true Christian, you cannot live an entire life in carnality. You can't. Eventually, God will get you and bring you back. But when Paul was talking to the Corinthian Christians, he called them carnal at one point. So Christians can be carnal, but only for a short period. Any time that you're not walking according to the Spirit, you're in danger of walking into that other path. Any one of us, me, my wife, my kids, all of us. And so we need to be very, very serious about a passage like this where we can learn a lot. So we're going to use Leah and Rachel's story for the next two weeks to look at seven examples in this text of what a carnal mind can do, how it can distort and warp your thinking. And in case you've already tuned me out thinking, oh man, another message about my sin. Let me tell you, this is very, very important that you don't tune me out on this one. This is an opportunity for you to really make war against those things that are pulling you away from God. These seven things that we're going to learn over the next two weeks, I put up for your mind like this. This is my next seven points. I'm going to do three of them today and four of them next week. Here's what it is. Carnal minds lead to a distorted God. Now, before I go on, here's what I mean, okay? Carnal minds, a mind that is being obedient to my flesh will eventually distort the God of the Bible and create a whole new one. Carnal minds lead to distorted relationships. Carnal minds lead to distorted, a distorted conscience. Carnal minds lead to a distorted perceptions. Carnal minds lead to distorted values. Carnal minds lead to distorted morality. And finally, carnal minds lead to a distorted sense of honor. All that is happening in this story with Rachel and Leah. Every single aspect of their life had been corrupted by this. I want to give you advance notice. After these seven, oh, God gets a hold of Rachel and shows his faithfulness. So if you're visiting, you have to come back next week. You have to. I'm going to call you up and tell you to watch the sermon online. You have to come back next week. That said, let's go through example number one. We're going to do them quickly and go through three this morning. Example number one that we see in the story of Rachel and Leah is that carnal minds lead to a distorted God. A distorted God. So before we even look back at the text, let me explain again. Listen. When you start to allow sin to have a place in your mind, it's as if it's releasing a toxin. A toxicity goes through your mind and it begins to distort all the rest of the avenues of your life, even though you don't think it will. This is what's happening here. Look back at verses 1 and 2 and you'll see where this happens with Leah and Rachel. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She envied her sister. So here already her mind is is corrupted. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel and Leah's sinful desire to outdo one another. And let me just say it one more time. 20 years. 
this went on. This wasn't just a passing weekend where they fought against each other. 20 years. This lifestyle, trying to outdo the other, one-up the Joneses, if you will, the Jones just happened to be her sister, led to the elevation of Jacob. They had taken Jacob and put him in a place he had no business being in in their heart and mind. They had taken their husband and made him, listen very carefully, the pathway through which they would find happiness. Here's why. They thought in their mind, the only way I'm going to be happy in life is if I have babies and lots of them. Because then I'll outdo my sister and then I'll be happy. When my husband finally starts to honor me. So what do they do? They make Jacob, they put Jacob in the place of God. They make him the primary object of their thought life. So if I can just get Jacob to be with me tonight, then I'll I'll accomplish two things. One, I might have a baby. And two, I'll outdo my sister. This had become their source of happiness. If I could just get that thing, for them it was babies, then I'll be happy. They were looking for that to satisfy them. Their mind had decided that this was going to be the thing that would finally make them feel content. He became the object of their affection. And so now here's where it comes to you. The longer we, you and me, all of us, give in to a particular sin, the longer we let it fester in our lives, the more likely we become to substitute someone or something for God. And here's the more likely scenario for Christians. Christians, instead of doing that, substituting God, changing God, they shape him. They take the God of the Bible, our God, Jesus, and they chip away at him to make him into something that's a little bit more palatable. And before long, he doesn't look anything like the historical Jesus that we read about. They've done pretty much what Rachel is doing. They're replacing God with a substitute God. Now, Jacob was clearly saying this um, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Am I God? Look, I'm not the one who controls whether or not you have babies. Get angry at God if you're angry at somebody. I can't control this. But he was speaking something that was actually true. They had put him in that place. That's why he felt that way. Rachel says this. Give me children or I shall die. How do you think she got there? Keep in mind, the sister that was rejected, Leah, had just had four healthy baby boys. And here's the loved sister, the beautiful one that everybody admired, and she can't have babies. And so now she's really jealous really angry and she's angry at whom god god is the one she's angry with because god is the one that made her barren and so he says to her why should you be angry at me i don't have any control over this the number of years that she allowed this sin to continue in her mind has led to a complete distortion about who was really in authority over her life do you see this She had made it so that her husband was in complete authority when it was only God that should have that role. So what about you? Before we move on to point number two, I want you to do some self-examination here. What about you? Is it possible that as I'm talking right now, something popped into your mind about a, a career maybe or a personal pursuit, something that has just been occupying your thought life more than God? Maybe it's not having babies like it was Rachel, but something Something that you've elevated to a place that only God should occupy. Let me tell you something that is absolutely true. If you are making anything else other than God the ultimate source of your happiness, it will ultimately leave you only wanting more of that thing. This has been the truth since the beginning of time. If it's work that you love so much, guess what? 
you'll want more of work. And when it doesn't satisfy you, guess what you'll try to do to put a band-aid on it. You'll get more of work. And then when it doesn't satisfy, you'll just take one more work. If it's money, you'll get a little bit of it. You'll start to feel good. And then it doesn't satisfy. So what do you do? I just need more money. And if it doesn't satisfy, you just need more money. Guess what happens to these two sisters? God gives them both babies. And what do you think? You think they're satisfied? Thank you, God. Now I'm content. No, they just want more babies. And even after six of them, I just want more babies. I got to keep out doing my sister. This is human nature. This is me. This is, if you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not me. You're lying to yourself. It's you too. Nothing will satisfy you but God, no matter how hard you try. Point number two for this morning. Example two that we see with Leah and Rachel, a carnal mind leads to distorted relationships. Distorted, this is the clearest one in the, in the text. Look back with me at verses three and four. Then she said, this is Rachel, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her. Does this sound familiar? So that she may give birth on my behalf. That even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her. So here's what you need to know. Rachel's sinful desire here again to outdo her sister, not only did it lead her to sin, but it led other people to sin too. I've heard some teachers teach wrongly that this was just a case of adultery. This wasn't polygamy. No, it says right here. She gave him as a wife. A wife. This is the clearest case of polygamy in the Bible. And what would you expect, as I said before, but heartache and pain and more jealousy if you've had all these women competing for one man? What would you expect? This is a surefire way to disaster. And so Rachel gives her servant, her maid. So there goes that relationship. She just led her maid into a sinful lifestyle. Not only that, but she led her husband into it as well. So immediately, two relationships here have been cracked, if not totally severed. It'll never be the same again. Likewise, the longer I... Give, make provisions for a particular sin in my life, the more I can guarantee you one thing will happen. I guarantee this will happen. The more I allow sin to live in my brain without asking God to remove it, the greater my relationships with each of you in my church, with each of the people in my family, and especially with God will start to crack. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. Here's how I know. Think about this with me for just a minute. Let's just think logically for just a moment. Once you have something come into your life that your conscience, we all have one of those, your conscience tells you that is not, is not right, morally not right. You have two options. One, you can either come before God and say, help cleanse me of this. Or you can tell God to shut up. Tell the conscience to keep its mouth shut so that it doesn't bother you anymore. When that happens, I've done it. Here's what happens. Guilt starts to set in where I know that I'm doing something against the will of God. And when that happens, I do what I've been doing since I was a child. I run and hide. What have you been doing since when when your parents caught your hand in the cookie jar? You run and hide. And if your brother or sister's in the room when that happens, you start lashing out at them just because they're in the room with you. What did Adam and Eve do the moment they got caught? They ran and hid. And then they started blaming each other. Well, the woman you gave me told me to do it. Instantly, the relationship with God started to crack and the relationship with his wife started to crack. Why? Because that's what happens when sin enters our lives. It immediately begins to affect relationships. First with God, 
I don't feel like reading my Bible because every time I do, that sin comes up into my mind. I just can't handle that this morning, so put this away. I don't want to go hang out with Christian people because the more I do, that thing keeps coming up in my mind. I don't want that. I'm certainly not going to go to church. That's what happens. Relationships start to sever. Since the beginning of time, it's been the same old thing. Nothing new under the sun. So, the more we continue to hide or push back this particular thing, you know what it is. I have a thing too. You have a thing. The more we continue to hide that in the back, the longer we will start to go like this in relationships with our, in our lives. If you're someone here this morning, please don't miss this. If you're someone here this morning who's ever said this next statement out loud or said it in your mind or you've heard someone say this, look, my sin doesn't hurt anybody so I really don't think it's wrong. If that has ever come out of your mouth, I want to warn you on God's authority, your mind is completely deceived. Completely and totally warped and deceived and you are in grave danger. Because your sin does hurt other people, starting with Jesus, number one. Second, it will start to affect every one of your relationships. The more I do, if I have a day where I know I'm just not walking in the spirit, yes, I have those days where I'm just tired, maybe I didn't sleep well, I didn't eat well, and I'm just irritable and cranky, and I start to give in to those desires to just do what makes you feel comfortable, Luke. Just do what makes you feel comfortable. You know what suffers first? Them. Right, Ashley? Nod your head. Yes. My family. Because the next thing you know, I just want to be alone. I'm overly sensitive, overly irritable. Everything bothers me. I don't want to be with my kids. I don't want to be with my wife. Just leave me alone. The moment I start to make provision. If I do it, I bet you do too. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans chapter 13. He says, let us behave decently, as in the daytime. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Do you know why he keeps saying this over and over and over again? Make no provision. Don't even let it get in there. Do you know why? Because it destroys relationships. That's the reason, beginning with God and on through the rest of the people in your life. A mind that allows sin to grow always leads to distorted, corrupted, and warped relationships. Always. A mind that is sick will want to hide its sickness, and the sickness will grow, and before long it will start to infect other people. A mind that is healthy will want the sickness to be exposed so that it can get healed, right? That's what we should all want. We should want our sinfulness to be exposed so that God can begin to make us right again in our minds and in our hearts. Example number three, our final one for this morning. Carnal minds lead to a distorted conscience. A distorted conscience. Look back at verses five and six. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me. And has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Now, here's why I say that. Emphasis added there, by the way. That's probably not the way it was written with that voice. But here's why I read it that way. Because Leah's mind had been so deceived, so warped, that here's what happens. She thought that the righteous, holy God of the universe looked down on this envious rivalry that had been going on for years 
and said, I judge that and I award in favor of Rachel. I love what I see, Rachel, and because of that, I'm going to award you with a child. That's the way Rachel's talking here. So much so that she named her son Dan, and Dan means justice. She named her son Dan because she believed justice has been done today. God helped me beat my sister. Exactly. It's laughable. It's laughable. But this is what happens when a mind gets warped. She literally believed that this is the way that God thought. The Bible tells us that those who want to model their lives after God are practicing the kind of love that God has for us, right? If any of you here today would raise your hand and say, yeah, I want to model my life after God. Well, you'll be putting into practice the kind of love that God has. Let me just read you from the most famous chapter in the Bible on love. Even my, one of my atheist friends has this hanging in his living room. Because everybody knows this is true. Just the first three parts of it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not envy. Rachel had been completely deceived into thinking that God was blessing something he clearly does not. The more Rachel focused on herself and her own desires, the further toxic her mind became. The more damaged her conscience became to the point where she could no longer understand right from wrong, good from evil. She thought God was a rewarder of evil. Now listen very carefully. Paul told Timothy that there would come a time when the church would be filled with teachers whose conscience would be just like Rachel's. Did you hear what I said? He told Timothy that there's going to come a time, likely our time, when the teachers would have consciences like this, like Rachel's. Listen to what he says. Now, this is 1 Timothy 4.2. Now the Spirit expressly states, so this is God talking, that in latter times, some will abandon the faith to follow deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This sounds like Descartes, doesn't it? A demon telling me what's true and what's false. Sounds like what he thought. Influenced by the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. This passage is talking about teachers. That's why you need to really examine what I'm saying. To make, you need to know your Bibles to make sure I'm not one of these. Because if I am, you've got to come tell me. The church will be filled with people whose consciences are thinking like Rachel's. What a scary time to be a Christian, right? Likewise, this isn't just true for teachers. The longer you and I do what Rachel did, where we allow sin, we give provision for it in our mind, the longer we stand the chance of our consciences becoming broken. And they no longer tell us when something is right and wrong. So much so that we think God is blessing me when clearly He would have no reason to because you're living a lifestyle that is opposite of what he says is best for you. In case you're wondering if this is kind of a rare thing that doesn't happen too often, not too long ago, I met with a man for coffee who was an elder in a church, a Christian church, and this is what he told me. He told me that he believed that God approved of his pornography addiction because his wife told him it was okay. Now, this man was in his 70s, and his wife told him, look, as long as you don't leave me, you can do whatever you need to to satisfy those needs, because I just don't have that desire anymore. So, he told me, God approves of it. And he had also taken it much further, hiring people to fulfill those needs. An elder in a church. This is a perfect example of someone who has taken their conscience and shut it off. They broke it. And they also have taken the Bible and taken their Jesus and shaped him to be someone he's not. 
simply because his wife said, as long as you don't leave me, you can satisfy that desire any, any, any way you want. Are we immune to that kind of deception? I don't think so. I think it's very prevalent in the church today, and we need to be making war. That's what I intend to spend my days doing. So as I bring this into a close, let me ask one more time, what about you? Is it possible that even as I mention this, listen carefully to me, even as I mention this, is it possible that there's been something that has popped up into your mind that you've told to be quiet? That you've said, I don't want to think about that. I've been doing it for years, and God has given me many blessings in my life, so it's obviously not wrong. Let me tell you, you're in danger. You're in danger. If you think like that, it's a very good sim, sim, um, sign that your conscience is either entirely broken or is beginning to be broken. I'm telling you this as a pastor, and I'm telling you this to warn you out of love. Guard your conscience. It's the greatest tool that God has given you to hear his voice. Guard your conscience. With all these things in mind, I want to reread to you Galatians 5. Now that you've gotten a good example with Rachel and Leah, as we bring this to a close, listen again to Galatians 5 and do some introspection. Listen. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I know this is heavy. I know this is heavy. Even as I was preparing it this weekend, I felt the heaviness of this kind of a message. Listen to me. If you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling broken by this kind of a thing, maybe you can hide it well. Maybe your heart is feeling really broken over something that is off in your relationship with the Lord. Let me tell you something absolutely clear, and I hope that you will take this with you today. God never abandoned these two sisters. He never turned his back on them despite 20 years of warped thinking. God's faithfulness is true. Great is thy faithfulness. Say it with me. Great is thy faithfulness. You cannot fix what's wrong with you any better than I can. Only God can fix your warped and distorted mind. And he will, but you have to cry out to him. I want to pray with you about this. Would you bow your heads with me? Truly, O oh God, your faithfulness is great. 
It's that faithfulness that makes us want to sing from the top of our lungs because we know you made a way. You made a way for us to be made right again and to walk in the light, to see the world as it truly is. And you gave us a savior to rescue us from warped thinking so that we would know how to think in step with the spirit of God. What a tremendous gift you've given us. Not by anything we did, but by your grace and mercy alone that we're able to think like God. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That you would rescue people like me and my wife and my children whose minds are totally depraved and rescue us. Oh God, makes me want to sing. So I pray for every person in this room now that as we close this service with, service with an offering of thanksgiving and prayer for your faithfulness, that you would just rejuvenate our minds so that we would be able to see the deceptions of the devil. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.